You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we are in a sermon series called Hero, and it's going to be a time where we go through the book of Judges. So hopefully you're grabbing Bibles there on the floor or opening it up on your phone. And uh, we'll be looking at Judges chapter 2, what you just heard read. And uh, what, what we, so it kind of has two introductions, really, the first chapter and second chapter. So last week I did the first introduction, and if you want to listen to that, which I would encourage you to do so, to go on SoundCloud, which you can access through our website, uh, but to listen to that. But what we found out last week is that Judges is really about failure. Doesn't that sound encouraging? Yeah, that's really what it's about. It's about failure. Uh, and they uh, are failing at the thing that matters most to God, which is true worship. In God's eyes, success is worshiping the one true God, and failure is not worshiping the one true God. It seems simple enough. Keep the main thing the main thing. Worship only God. And it's not complicated, but it's difficult. It is difficult. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, puts it this way, our hearts are like idol factories. Our default, apart from the grace of God, is to worship something other than God. And oftentimes, at the center of our personal pantheon is ourself. But what if you know better? What if you know better? What what if you have been told, what if you've been shown that God is the one true God and that He wants true worship? What then? This was the case of the Israelites. They had been told told verbally. They had been told in writing. uh, they, They had been shown miracles to convince them that they ought to be worshiping the one true God. Mount Sinai comes to mind. It's the place where God gives the people of God the Ten Commandments, much of which are about worship, true worship, right? Worship no other gods. And accompanying that written word is an earthquake and thunder and lightning. And the the description of their response to both the the experience of that and the, the written word of that is in Exodus 20, verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I mean, it seems like they got the message. God was serious when He gave those Ten Commandments. And He told them to worship the one true God and to do that with their everyday lives and the way they spent their money and the ways that they organized their week and all these different ways that they would worship the one true God. But in one generation, just one, They turn away. This is what we just read in Judges 2. This is only one generation later after Mount Sinai, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. 
And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. They worshiped other gods. So let's talk about this. I want to talk about, number one, the anatomy of false worship. All right, so that's kind of point, point one. Point two is, what does God do about it when we are worshiping falsely, especially if we're one of His? All right? And then number three, how should I respond? Right? What, what, what should be my response to these truths? So anatomy of false worship, what God does about it, and how should I respond? Those are three points. So number one, anatomy of false worship. Now under this, we're going to talk about the what, the why, and the how. The what, the why, and the how of false worship. So the what of worship for the Israelites was they, they were worshiping fertility gods and goddesses. These were gods and goddesses that were worshipped by the Canaanites that had once populated the land. And the way you worshipped those fertility gods is you made sacrifices and you had sex with temple prostitutes. And what you thought when you went to that temple and you offered that sacrifice and you had sex with these, these sort of ritualistic prostitutes at these temples is you thought that by you getting busy, it was causing uh, Baal and Asherah, the god and goddess, to get busy up in heaven. And when they got busy, things got really fertile down on earth. And so your, your, your fields were fertile and your crops grew well and you had a lot of kids. And, and that didn't mean more college tuition. That meant more people to work on the fertile land. And so you were able to produce more crops, produce more wealth. And this is, this is why you would worship a fertility god or goddess. Now, most of us are probably not bowing down to wood or stone figures, although that does happen in this town. But we're probably worshiping it as, as something else, but it, it is indeed false worship. So... A couple of the diagnostic questions that I've thrown out uh, a few times to help us understand what, it, what is it that I, I worship or I'm tempted to worship. So one diagnostic question would be, uh, if I only had blank, then my life would be perfect. If I only had blank, if I only had a spouse, if I only had a boyfriend, girlfriend, if I only had better grades, if I only had more money in my account, if I only had friends, if I only had whatever that thing is that you think, if I just had that, life would be okay. That's probably one of your idols. Probably one of your idols. You're either worshiping at that idol or you're tempted to worship at that idol. Or another diagnostic question, if I lost blank, then my life would be destroyed. If I lost blank, if I lost my friends, if I lost my boyfriend, girlfriend, if I lost my spouse, if I lost my kids, if I lost this money, if I lost this prestige, if I lost this position, if I lost this education, whatever that thing is in the blank, we say, but I lost that, I'd be absolutely devastated, probably an idol. Either an idol that you're worshiping or an idol that you're tempted to worship. For me, off and on, I have to ask me these, these questions about ministry. Lord, if I didn't have ministry, if I wasn't Pastor Rob, you know, would I still worship the one true God, right? There's a temptation there to, to, to say, this is, this is something over and above God, even good things, right? That, that's the sneaky thing, is we take good things and we turn them into God things. There's nothing wrong with spouses and money in your bank and education and ministry and vocation. and These things are good things, but they are not God things. And when we place them in the God blank, we are worshiping falsely, right? So that's the what of worship. But why? Why do we do this? And why does Israel do this? Well, again, they're doing it for fertility of their crops and their kids, but ultimately for safety and security. 
right? They're living a hand-to-mouth existence. They're in an agricultural kind of environment. They, they want as many crops as they can possibly get to store up because they want safety and security for their family. And so they're tempted to do this religious brokering back and forth with these fertility gods to try to get more fertility, to get more crops, to get more safety and security. I mean, can you believe it? Humans worshiping at the feet of sex and wealth and convenience. Some things never change. Some things never change. So why do we worship our idols, right? Well, we have a valid need, right? Maybe we're fearful, we're lonely, we're shame-filled, we're insecure, we're hopeless. We may even have some physical needs that we, we, we want met. And instead of going to the one true God for those things, we shift to a lesser God that we feel like we have control of, that we can broker with, and we can get those needs met on our terms, on our terms. Now, we might be thinking, that's not me. I go to church. I mean, I read my Bible. I'm not one of those who worships falsely. I think Israel thought the same way. They were still worshiping Yahweh, but they wanted to bring in Asherah and Baal, create a pantheon. God will not stand for that. He's the one true God. He's the one true God. And so Israel was thinking, no, we just add some other gods and goddesses to our pantheon and we'll get more of the good life that we want on our terms. And yeah, we'll still worship the one true God, right? But we'll worship other gods as well. Again, this is us. This is us. We're, on one hand, we're, we're worshiping and submitting to, on some level, the, the, the one true God. But, but when we really have a need that we're, we really want to meet on our terms, we shift and we start to worship at the foot of an idol. So that's the why, right? The why. We have a, we have a need. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an authentic need, a, a real need. But we, we seek to meet that need in something else than God. Now, how did this happen to Israel? This, this is what I talked about last week, actually, in the sermon, is how this happened was just little compromises, little compromises. I call them Canaanite compromises. And you see it even in this text in Judges 2. It says in the verse 12, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. He's, he's letting us know that, that, that the reason that they bowed down and worshipped these gods is because the Canaanites who were allowed to live near them were worshipping other gods, and it was just really convenient for them to start worshipping another god. It was right there under their nose. And what God had given them was strict instructions to remove the Canaanites, not because God had some, something sort of like this, I, I just don't like Canaanites, I just want to get rid of Canaanites, you know? It was, I want to get rid of their worship practices because I want to establish a people of true worshippers. And so he removed them, much like a surgeon removes all the microbes before he or she does a surgery, right? Creates a sterile field. It's not because they're, they're, they're having some, you know, something personal against microbes. It's because bacteria can cause infection, and they're against infection. And so God was telling them, remove the Canaanites because you need to remove the false worship practices because they are a spiritual infection waiting to happen. And the Israelites refused to do it. They actually kept the Canaanites around, not because they were scared of them, because they wanted to enslave them. We found that out in Judges chapter 1. Again, what they want, they want, they want wealth, they, they want convenience, right? How about a few Canaanite slaves to make the good life even better? This is the how. 
This is the how. Compromise after compromise after compromise. I'm sure when they made those first few compromises, they weren't thinking, we're on a path to false worship. They weren't thinking that. But what they were not doing was seeking to live a holy life. They were compromising after compromise after compromise. Now, again, with the Canaanites under their noses, of course, they were drawn into false worship. I mean, think about this. Here, they're supposed to be worshiping one true God. And he's saying, in order to worship me and follow me, you, you need to eat kosher, right? You need to organize your week with a Sabbath every week. He tells them who they can have sex with, who they can't. He, he tells them where they can worship, right, at the tabernacle, not only the tabernacle. He, he tells them they need to submit to the authority of Moses. He tells them that they can't steal or lie or covet. And while they're trying to live out this worship life that, that is, is every part of their lives, they're looking over at the Canaanites who are running down to the temple to have sex with a temple prostitute. And they're brokering a deal with, the, with the, the, the Canaanite gods. And they're thinking, that looks a lot better. And so they're tempted to go down that way. And I, I think we feel that too sometimes, right? We have people around us that are worshiping other gods. They may not say it that way, but every human being on the planet is worshiping something. They have something ultimate that that's the very core of their being, and they're bowing down to that thing, even if it's if their own selves. And while they're doing that, sometimes when you're seeking to worship the one true God, you look over at those who are not, and you think, my life might be better if I wasn't worshiping the one true God. You think, students might think, I, I think I could have more fun. Maybe I could have more dates and romance or better grades if I could cheat or, or, you know, if I didn't have to do this seek first the kingdom of God thing all the time. Maybe life could be better. Or working people, perhaps, thinking I, I could have more fun or I could get more money if I could cut corners and not have as much integrity or maybe I could get more leisure time if I wasn't involved in the church or things of that nature without Jesus looking over my shoulder all the time. And of course, that might be true short term, but false worship always, always leads to death. Death in this life, death in the life to come. It always leads to death. And so what does God do when His own people are choosing to worship falsely? He disciplines them. He disciplines them. We read about that in verse 14 of Judges chapter 2. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. That's what plunderers do. They plunder. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord was warned had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So they get discipline, right? They don't get justice, right? The justice they deserve, being idol worshipers, is really death. They, they deserve to be wiped off the face of the promised land. That is indeed not what God does. He does get angry, though. He does get angry. It makes some of us feel uncomfortable, I don't like to think of God as angry. And that's why you don't read the Old Testament. You stay away from judges, right? You, you don't like a, an angry God. But it does show that God's not aloof. He's not above emotion. He's being betrayed by His children. Ought He not be angry? 
I mean, someone that you really love and you care about and you have invested in and you've poured your life into and they betray you? Do you just kind of sit back aloof? Ah, no big deal. I mean, God likens this, this betrayal as uh, a wife committing adultery against a husband. This is serious. And God feels it strongly in his emotions. Now, he does not experience emotions exactly like humans do. Okay, There's some similarities, but on one hand, he, he uh, uh, is immutable. Right? That means he's unchangeable. Right? Hebrews tells us Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? So he can't, can't be changed. And this fits with another piece of his character, his immutabil- or, uh, impassibility. Right? He can't be acted upon. So even his emotions are something that he, in eternity, has willed. No one acts on God. It's not like he didn't know Israel was, was going to turn away from him, and he's like, oh, I'm so mad. I didn't know Israel was going to do No, it's not like that. Right? In eternity past, he knows it's going to happen, and he willed to have these emotions, but they are emotions, and the emotion is anger. Now, in his anger, again, he does not give them over to death. He gives them over to discipline. And he allows the Canaanites to plunder them, right? So they're, th- these, these good gifts that they were given, the land itself was a gift. All the crops they're getting, that's grace. It's all a gift. And now they're having the gifts taken away from them. That's, pl- that's what plunder means, right? You, you're having something that you had and now it's being stolen. It's being taken away from them, but for the purpose of helping them realize that those were all free gifts from a good God. And that they ought to be worshiping the one true God in response to all the good things that he's giving them. But instead, they're turning away from him. He will not allow that. He will not allow his children to do that. He will insist that they worship him and him alone. And he will discipline them if he needs to. He's taken the force field off. Right? They didn't know there was a force field. They, they didn't realize he was making sure that they were protected and that they were thriving. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to take the force field off. And you're going to realize that this good life that you had was by my own hand. We're about to commemorate 9-11 again this week. This has become a yearly thing where we think about this. And this is one of those moments in American history where I think we realized, at least for like 48 hours, that uh, the safety, security, the the, the good things we have in this country, uh, they are by God's grace. There are no guarantees except by His grace. And I, and I hear people sometimes say, well, don't bet against America. Like, we're, no one can touch us. Well, if no one can touch us, it's because God is protecting us. It's by His grace. It's by His mercy. And, and Israel was, was feeling pretty entitled, feeling pretty strong. Right? What they didn't realize is everything they were given, everything they had was given by God. Now, we as individuals are the same way. We go through life feeling strong and smart, capable, not realizing we're not entitled to that, nor did we come up with that. That was given to us by God and God alone. And the reaction we should have, the response we should have, is to worship the one true God. God doesn't even allow them to have victory in battle. Up to this point, they're pretty much one loss and everything else is a victory. And all of a sudden, they're coming out and they're trying to to, to battle against the Canaanites. And at this point, 
they're like the Amherst Middle School going against the, the Patriots, right? The Israelites are the Patriots. And the Amherst Middle School is beating the Patriots on the football field. It's that crazy. And they're scratching their head going, what is going on? Why do we lose every time we go into battle? And God's saying, because all those other victories, I gave those to you. That was by my grace. That was a gift. And what did you do? You turned away from true worship and you turned toward worship of false gods. It's discipline from God. Privileges are taken away. Resources that were once freely given to them by God being taken away. Victory over enemies that was once given freely by God taken away. It's similar to a teenager that's losing their iPhone and their car privileges and their time with friends. But they still get to live in a house and eat meals and get some of the best education in the world. Right? But they think life has ended. I don't have an iPhone because they've been plundered by their parents. God is plundering the Israelites more than their iPhones, but plundering them nonetheless. I read this this morning. I thought, wow, this is my sermon. Psalm 39, 11. He says, talking to God, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Right? These things that are so dear to us that, that, that we take these good things and we make them into God things. And God insists that we worship him and him alone. So the result of that discipline is distress. This is what we read in the last part of verse 15, and they were in terrible distress. This Hebrew word, it's a powerful word. It means to bind, to be cramped, to be narrow, to be besieged. This idea of the walls are closing in. You're completely out of ideas. You've called every friend. You have no other options. Absolute distress. And out of that distress, you cry out to God. You cry out to God. This is what God wanted in the first place. He wanted them to be worshiping the one true God, coming the one true God, grateful for the good gifts that he had given, asking him for the gifts that they needed for the future. This is what he wanted. And so in his love, he disciplines them. It causes terrible distress. And out of that terrible distress, they cry out. And this is what God does. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Remember that God that was angry? Now he's giving them judges. It's the same God. So it lets us know his, his anger, again, is, is more like a parent's anger who's been betrayed. It, it's, it's not like he's going off the handle, like, oh, I'm done with you. It's not like that at all. It's, it's I'm betrayed, and I love you, and you're turning away from me, and I want to be in relationship with you. And when they do cry out to him in his mercy, later on in the text, it says in his pity for them, he sends a deliverer to save them. There's 12 of those deliverers. There's 12 of them. Uh, we're going to look into the lives of three of them over the course of this semester. Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And these are the ones that the most ink is spilled on. Um, so I think they're probably the most significant in the book. They're also ones that you know of if you've ever read Judges. You, you, you probably know about Deborah and Gideon and, and uh, Samson. Uh, if you don't, it's okay. You'll find out about them before the semester is over. But they are the heroes. They are the deliverers. 
And when do you need a hero? You need a hero when you're out of options, <laughs> completely out of options. You're in distress. You don't call Superman when you need some help opening the jar of pickles. Right? You call Superman when Lex Luthor has figured out how to make himself president of the United States. Right? That's when you call Superman. You don't call Batman when you're needing some help mowing the yard. You call Batman when Joker is trying to destroy Gotham City. That's when you call Batman. You don't call Iron Man when you need a lift to the grocery store. You call, you call Iron Man when Mandarin is about to use his ten rings to rule the, rule the world, rule the universe, right? That's when you call a hero. And this is where Israel finds themselves, right? They've disobeyed. They've been disciplined. They've experienced distress. And out of the distress, they cry out for a deliverer. They have no other options. No other options. This is known as the judge's cycle. If you Google that, all kinds of stuff will come up. Usually the cycles are a little more complicated than mine that I'm showing you, but I think maybe you can remember these. So what's happening here is they're experiencing, they're disobeying. God's disciplining them. They're then experiencing distress and out of their distress crying out, and then they get a judge. They get a deliverer. And you think, well, why are there 12 judges? Well, because they keep going back to disobedience. And they start to cycle again. And they do that 12 times. In fact, it's described a little bit. This is kind of, kind of like an overview of the whole book, right? Uh, verse 17, You did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods, and they bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So what happens in the book of Judges, as they go through that cycle, and every time they disobey, they spiral down. We'd like to see them spiral up. We'd like to see them grow and learn and get better. And that's not what they do. They spiral down. They get worse. And the actual judges themselves become more flawed. So you get to the end of Judges. And, you know, the last sermon in this series is probably one of the most horrific, yeah, it's going to be awesome, horrific texts in the whole Bible, right? You say, well, this is going to be a great series. It'll be amazing. Why are, you doing, why are you preaching this? Well, because of what it tells us as we look at that downward spiral. One, it tells us that the people of God cannot pull themselves out of that cycle. No matter how hard they try, they can't pull themselves out. Number two, that those 12 deliverers were not enough. They were not enough. And what they did, they pointed forward to a true and better deliverer that is more than enough, and that is Jesus. That is Jesus. He is the true and better deliverer. He is the one that every prophet, every priest, every king, every judge points forward to. As you're reading the Old Testament, there's this sense of, if you don't know the the New Testament, you're reading through it and you think, oh, there's a new king. This time, everything's going to be made right. No, dead end. You see a prophet, oh, this time, everything's going to be made right. No, Every, every one of them, just dead end, dead end. The judges really going to feel that way. Like, oh, wow, Gideon, he's awesome. Ah, no. Samson, wow, look at the biceps on that guy. No. But what it's telling us is we're in desperate need of a true and better deliverer. And that's Jesus. Listen to the victory that our hero Jesus brings to us from 1 Corinthians 15. Great chapter. I'm only going to share three verses from it. 
But he says, says, says this, Paul the Apostle says, Then comes the end. Okay, So it's the final thing. When he delivers the kingdom of, to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. That's a hero right there. Every rule, every authority, every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's a hero. That's a deliverer. You need a hero to deliver you from death. Jesus, he's the hero you're looking for. And how did he do that? He delivered us from death with his own death. A lot of heroes will risk their lives to save others, but Jesus gave his life to save others, to save you and me. Because he knew it was the only way that we could be saved from sin and its effects, known as death. The implications of of that are are just life-changing, both in this life and the life to come. We commemorate that every time we come to this table, do we not? We're commemorating our hero. Remembering Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, right? God in the flesh being betrayed. I'm fairly certain from the text even, he, he wasn't just like aloof, like, well, I'm God, so whatever Judas does, I'm good with that. No! He's betrayed. He's hurt. He's feeling that emotionally. But what is his response to those disciples, all of which are, are going to run scared in the next few hours when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? What he does is he takes bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know, I am going to deliver you. And it's going to take me breaking, having my body broken on the cross. And in the same way, he takes the cup. And after he's taken the cup and blessed it and given thanks for it, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Sin and sin's effects, which is death, these are our worst enemies. These are our worst enemies. These are truly our worst nightmares. Not having a job for a few months, not getting all the education you wish you had, not having a boyfriend or girlfriend. Hey, those are real struggles, real needs. But I'm telling you, your deepest need would be saved from sin and all the effects of sin. Sin, death, and hell. And our hero Jesus lays down his life to save us from those enemies once and for all. And this is what we commemorate every time we come to this table. So for some of you, you've never sent out a distress signal to Jesus. But in this moment, you're realizing, oh, I need that. For the very first time, you're realizing it. Realizing, yes, I, I am a sinner and I can't get myself out of this cycle. I need a hero to deliver me from this cycle, that you yourself are not the hero in your story, that Jesus is the hero in your story. And so send out the distress signal this morning. Cry out to him, asking him to forgive you, to rescue you, to save you from sin and death and hell, and to bring you into a relationship with him this morning. For others of us, maybe we've, we've done that already. We, we've received Christ by faith and we've been made new. We've been washed clean. That's a once-for-all thing. It's, nothing's going to change that. But we may have gone the way of our old sinful flesh and 
to the default of worshiping falsely. Of course we have. And it's partly why we come here to be reminded of the gospel. And we found ourselves in distress and needing to cry out anew. Not, not to save our, have ourselves saved again, but to be rescued within this covenant love that we get to experience week in and week out with Jesus. And so it may be that God has disciplined you and you've experienced that. And, and he's doing that in love, right? As a father loves his child and he's bringing you back into a right relationship with him. Send out that distress signal. For others, it's just sort of garden variety suffering. <laughs> just struggling. It may, it may not be discipline per se, but scriptures teach us in, in Hebrews 12, endure hardship as discipline. And so it's an opportunity when we have hardship to, to send out the distress signal, to cry out to God and to depend on Him and Him alone. Because our tendency is when we're in distress, we turn toward things that are going to help us escape it or medicate it or fix it on our terms quickly. And those things turn into these idols that we worship. And we don't want to do that. We want to turn away from that and the temptation of that. And we want to turn toward worship of the one true God, that we're going to depend on His grace and mercy alone and allow him to dispense that on his terms, not on our terms. So wherever you are in, that, in those different groups, send out the distress signal this morning. And let's do that as we commemorate the hero that has come to deliver us. Let's pray. God, we, we confess to you our, our hearts are so easily entangled. We, we, we find ourselves moving toward good things sometimes and treating them like God things, Lord, and then other times just things that aren't good at all that we're uh, indulging in and things that are, are dishonoring to you but honestly bringing death to us. So, Lord, may you give us grace and mercy and deliver us from those things, Lord. Give us freedom from those things and not just free us from them but free us to worship you, the one true God. And so as we commemorate what you did on the cross, as we take this bread and cup, Lord, we behold you, our hero, the majesty of that, the strength of that, the love of that, the tenderness of that, Lord. And as we behold that, may it just soften our hearts and cause our hearts to warm towards you, Lord, and to cause our hearts to bow to you in worship of you and you alone. Please bless this bread and this cup and this time together, and we worship, we worship you in this, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.